Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, we're thanking you for who you are and for how you work, the sovereign God. And how in eternity past you had designed within the Trinity the plan of redemption. Allowing for in this sovereign plan for humanity to fall, as we see in the Genesis story, how we're confronted with the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the Bible teaches, including each and every one of us. How in your sovereign plan you designed for Jesus Christ, second member of the Trinity, to come to die in our place for our sins. And that salvation is found in Christ alone, and we are reconciled to you through Christ alone. So, Father, what we want to do when we explore your word, whether it be the Older Testament or the New, is to see how whatever passage we're looking at fits into the great picture and design of your story of redemption. And each one here in these services is part of your story. No one here is a misplaced story. forgotten person in your timeline of redemption. Thank you that Jesus Christ died in our place. And thank you for the story that has been written. Now, Father, in these minutes together as we explore your word, our prayer once again is that you would warm these hearts that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. In the midst of this growing congregation, Father, we've come here again to see Jesus and him only. I'm praying these things still again now in Jesus' name. Amen. The Jerusalem Post Office, in one of uh, the recent documentaries on Israel, informs us of an ongoing onslaught of mail that comes their way. It's from people with prayer requests, Jews all over the globe. What is interesting is how the letters are typically addressed. Quote, God. Care of the Wailing Wall. Unquote. There is something about the Wailing Wall within Jerusalem that seems to capture the emotional heartbeat of the Jew worldwide. Benjamin Netanyahu points out that even in the midst of the global dispersion, there is a magnetic attraction to that wailing wall because it seems to symbolize the relationship that one has to God, to Jerusalem, and the trials of life. Now here is Nehemiah, and he likewise is far removed from Jerusalem at this point 
living in a setting of comfort. And yet there will be something that so grips his heart that he, being the visionary leader that he is, looking at the stress through the lens of God's perspective, is going to pursue a prayer that will result in a plan that will make a difference for God's people. We're going to be looking today at three significant guidelines in these verses pertaining to his prayer, but before we do so, we've got to make our way into this text, because in verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, are as follows. Now it happened in the month of Kislev, which is roughly on the Jewish calendar, November, December time period for you and for me. In the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Now Susa is a part of modern-day Iran, which would have been the winter setting for the kings, one after another, within the land of Persia. That Hannah and I, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. Now, he is not a passive man. He is a proactive leader. And so you'll notice, he said, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped. Pause. As a parent, there's a way to be wisely and graciously proactive in the way in which you pose questions, not intrusively, but with a God's approach to spiritually drawing perspective out, even for the sake of prayer, I asked them. I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. Jerusalem is always so close to the heart of the Jew, you see, but even for believing Gentiles as well. Notice what they say in verse 3. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Something about walls, God, Jerusalem, and prayer. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. What I want to do with you now is with that laying before us, the scenery in which Nehemiah is about to pray, We're going to draw three significant guidelines that visionary leaders have with regarding the way in which God desires to work. The first flows out of verse 4 through 7. We'll put it like this, number one, that in trying times, begin with prayer. Honoring God's sovereignty, comma, seeking him day and night. You and I find that matters of vision can either be secularized or sacred. 
the secularized approach launches immediately into plans and programs. J. Oswald Saunders, in his brilliant book, Spiritual Leadership, on the other hand, argues strongly that vision is initiated within the context of prayer. Notice how this begins in verse 4. As soon as I heard these words, pulled together a team and began to develop a strategy? No. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before, here's your sovereignty, the God of heaven. What so grips your heart? stops you in your tracks and you find yourself not standing but sitting down and weeping before your sovereign God. Here is a man filled with a heart for God's people. And before you get into the plan of God, you've got to deal with the people of God. And a great leader understands this, and his heart is overtaken with the needs of people. It was February 12, 1959, the 150th anniversary of the birthday of Abraham Lincoln. And Carl Sandburg was asked to come to Washington, D.C. and to speak. He was one who had penned multiple volumes on Lincoln's life. His speech was entitled, quote, Man of Steel and Velvet, unquote, and stated as follows. Not often in the story of humankind does a man arrive on earth who is both steel and velvet, who is as hard as rock and as soft as drifting fog, who holds in his heart and mind the paradox of terrible storm and peace, unspeakable and perfect. While the war winds howled, he insisted that the Mississippi was one river meant to belong to one country. And while war wavered and broke and came again, as generals failed and campaigns were lost, he held enough forces together to raise new armies and supply them until generals were found who made war as victorious war, has always been made valor, sacrifice, past words of men to tell. And in the mixed shame and blame of the immense wrongs of two crashing civilizations, often with nothing to say, listen, he said nothing, slept not at all, 
And on occasions, he was seen to weep. To weep in a way that made weeping appropriate. Decent. And majestic. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept. What grips your heart? Mourn for days. If I understand the calendar, the Jewish calendar appropriately, what took place next where it says, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven, is that this pursuit of God in this form of intensive and extensive prayer lasted from our Thanksgiving time period on roughly to our Easter time period. What so energizes your heart that you've got a vision for God's people to do God's work for God's glory? That it so overwhelms your heart that the intensive and extensive dynamics are coupled, similar to his, as you pursue God in prayer. Verse 5. And I said, O Lord God. Notice L-O-R-D is capitalized. That is Yahweh, the covenantal God the covenant-keeping God. Notice how that is tied with what comes next, God of heaven. This is sovereignty. Now, there is no contradiction between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of humanity. There is a contradiction between the sovereignty of God and the sovereignty of humanity. When he people or individuals seek to become autonomous from God and execute their plans rather than submit to God's plans, you've got a clash of sovereignty. And God always comes out the winner. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God. Now he moves from who God is. To what God does, this is rich because it's so informed with Scripture. And spiritual leadership, as J. Oswald Saunders in his great book, Spiritual Leadership, points out, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Do you see that phrase, who keeps covenant and steadfast love? There's a very powerful statement that's found in Deuteronomy. It seems as though Nehemiah must have been developing his thought processes and his mind from the book of Deuteronomy. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9, Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. In other words, he is praying scriptures back to God. Now, let's say you've got a burden on your heart right now. Maybe your heart is weighed down heavily. 
it's critically important that you pray the promises of God back to God. You know the promises are true. What you don't know is the timing of the implementation of the promise. You have to pull together the timeless with the timely. The timeless is, oh, you can almost hear the exhale. Oh, Lord, Yahweh, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, and now you move from who he is to what he does, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 6. Notice how once again, as we noted last week when we studied the hand of the Lord, he continues to use anatomical illustrations for spiritual truths. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you. Mark this, day and night. Notice he refers to himself in this day and night process as the servant of God. In other words, he, though positioned in leadership within the Persian Empire in the vicinity of the king himself, views himself in relationship to the sovereign God as servant. When you and I are praying the promises of God back to God, notice the relationship of sovereign and servant. And so you, if you love Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior, as a servant of the Lord, are praying the promises back to the sovereign Lord. And in your intercessory prayer, because you're so burdened for people and never put the plans before the people, don't start by praying, or even furthermore, don't start by simply strategizing your plans. You start with prayer and let prayer be the context where you develop your plans. But you pray in the context whereby the people of God our soul being connected in your heart to the sovereignty of God, then their plans begin to emerge naturally rather than forced secularly. He's appealing here to his sovereign God, let your ear be attentive, your heart, eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. No competition for sovereignty here that now I pray before you day and night. Notice the extensive and intensive combo. But this is intercessory. Who's on your heart? For the people of Israel, your servants are the ones on Nehemiah's heart, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. E. Stanley Jones, in his volume, A Song of Sense, writes, Prayer is not pulling God to my will, 
but the aligning of my will to the will of God. Aligned to God's redemptive will, anything, everything can happen in character, conduct, and creativity. The whole person is heightened by that prayer contact. In that contact, I find health from my body, illumination from my mind, moral and spiritual reinforcement from my soul. Prayer is time exposure to God. So I expose myself to God for an hour and a half, two hours a day, asking less and less for things, and more and more for him. For having him, I have everything. He gives me what I need for character, conduct, creativity, so I'm rich with his riches. Strong in his strength, pure in his purity, able in his ability. Isn't that what a leader wants? There's your Nehemiah. Notice here now he understands the dynamic of servant to the sovereign. Not wanting God to align his will to Nehemiah's. But viewing himself as servant, Nehemiah wants Nehemiah, his will, to be aligned with God's. Is that you? Because out of that, then, what emerges here is verse 7. And notice the we, not, not the they. We have acted very corruptly as he scans the course of Israelite history. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So what he wants to do at this point now is to explore why are we where we are? You see, the walls that have been broken down around Jerusalem that leave the people in Jerusalem vulnerable, the walls that are broken are really symptomatic of the commandments that have been broken. The issue is not the walls. The issue is the hearts. And when lives are rebuilt, then walls will be rebuilt. Are you more focused on walls or upon hearts? Theodorus said this of Martin Luther. I overheard him in prayer, but good God, with what life and spirit did he pray? It was with so much reverence, as if he were speaking to God yet with so much confidence as if he were speaking to his friend. And out of that, this visionary was at the forefront of the Reformation. 
so we think about this and we relate it to the circumstances we have of life. And so in trying times, you begin with prayer, honoring God's sovereignty. You're seeking him day and night, not one to the exclusion of the other, you see. Out of that powerful vision emerges. But now here's a, a second guideline, and it comes out of verse 8 down through verse 10. The so number two, in trying times, you begin with prayer, recalling God's promises and how he disciplines and restores, not disciplines to the exclusion of restoration, not restoration to the exclusion of discipline. You've got a holy God on your hand, you know. So in verse 8, he is so saturated with the word of God that he is aware of the promises of God. And like you and like me, to pray effectively, we pray the promises of God back to God. The promises are eternal, but the application is temporal. You're trying to take the timeless and apply it to the timely. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the people. That's discipline. You see it there in our second guideline? I'll scatter you among the people, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, now notice the extremes. Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, there from there I will gather them, speaking of God, and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. And what is informing the theology of Nehemiah's prayer at this point is something furthermore found in Deuteronomy. Because in chapter 4, in verse 30, when you are in tribulation, God said via Moses, and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. Listen to this. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. J. Wilbur Chapman, in a prior era, tells the story of a young lady that ran away from home, far removed spiritually from God and physically from her mother. A friend of the mother's took a number of pictures of their mother and wrote beneath the face these words, come back. Went down into all settings of New York City and hung them there. And according to Chapman, not long after, the daughter was about to take one of the subway 
trains and saw the face of her mother. And her tears that were running down her face were such that she couldn't at first see the words beneath, but she brushed the tears away, looked, and there were these words. Come back. So Chapman tells us she went to her home, and when she put her hand on the latch, the door was open. And when she stepped inside, her mother, with her arms now about her, said, My dear, the door has never been fastened since you went away. And I want to say to anybody who took a long journey or a short journey away from God at a certain point in your life, and you're making your way back, and you saw the sign of God's word saying, come back. The door is not fastened. Yes, he disciplines. But also he restores. And so here now, what God is saying very powerfully through Nehemiah's writings is that Nehemiah has so saturated his mind with this that he's able to say to himself in verse 10, they are, they are your servants, your people. In other words, not only is he focused upon himself as God's servant, he also is focused upon all those who had strayed, who had left, and yes, God disciplines, but bear in mind that there's also a yes, God restores. And so in verse 10, they are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. And there you have it again. Remember last week we were looking very carefully at the hand of the Lord in Ezra? Well, it's there in Nehemiah too. Again from Ben Carson's book, Gifted Hands. 70,000 to 100,000 births. Twins joined at the head occur only once in 2 to 2.5 million births. Siamese twins were there for Dr. Carson to perform surgery. Most cranial pagus Siamese twins die at birth or shortly afterward. So far as we know, not more than 50 attempts had previously been made to separate such twins. Of those, less than 10 operations have resulted in two fully normal children. Aside from the skill of the operating surgeons, the success depends largely on how much and what kind of tissue the babies share. Occipital, cranial, 
Hagas twins, such as the Binders, had never before been separated with both surviving until his surgical procedure was completed. You're dealing with gifted hands. Now what Dr. Ben Carson is illustrating in his book, it's now in the 20th anniversary publication. As we noted last week, the hand of the Lord not only was guiding Ezra, but is now guiding Nehemiah. In verse 10, they are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power, and there you have it, and by your strong hand. Now once we've seized this, we're ready for the third guideline. Because visionary leadership flows out of visionary prayer, but it's the vision of God in the sacred heart, not the visionary vision of a man or woman in a secularized heart, maybe with a religious coding. You see, vision is looking at life through the lens of God's eye. And so now in verse 11, thirdly, in trying times, you begin with prayer, desiring God's attentiveness, requesting success and mercy. Verse 11. There's that one letter again. Oh, you can almost feel and hear the exhale. Oh. But when he says, Lord, this time, it's capital L, small O-R-D, which was used to describe the creationary God, the God who creates, the God who has all power. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Notice the servant sovereign dynamic at work here. Not competing sovereignties. Secularized vision casting is nothing more than competing sovereignties. But vision that is saturated within the context of prayer understands the relationship of God the sovereign and the believer the servant. Oh, Lord, let your prayer, excuse me, your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Draw a line back to verse 6. And let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your what? Your servant. Now in verse 11, oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants. He's tying together now the relationship he has individually to God with all the others who love God as well, who do what? Delight to fear your name. And now notice how bold he is. And give success to your servant. Just can't get away from describing him that way, neither should you or should I. Don't be afraid of calling upon God for success when it is rooted in who God is and what God's promise is about. That's what Joshua chapter 1 was all about as well. But he couples that here and says, and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. 
because he knows he needs mercy. But underline the phrase, this man. Who is this man? The king. In other words, what we see here is that Nehemiah is saying, the king is not sovereign, God is. I may work for the king, but my God alone is sovereign. And likewise, when you are looking at the dynamics of all the various authority structures at work or in this nation, bear this in mind, come fall. He's able to say with regard to this political leader, in this case, this man sees humanity here, not deity. But then adds this, and it's strategic. Now I was cupbearer to the king, which means he was positioned by the sovereign hand of God politically to be an advisor to an unbelieving king who had enacted a policy of religious tolerance whereby religious groups could return to their nations and worship their gods as they would choose. And God sovereignly worked in this way so that the Jews under Zerubbabel and under Ezra and now Nehemiah would be able to return to home turf and they would begin to rebuild walls because they've been busy rebuilding lives. I was cupbearer to the king. And so out of that then, you seek God's attentiveness. God. Care of the wailing wall. Benjamin Netanyahu notes this. The Jerusalem Post office receives this. But you've got to know how to turn to God. And then watch how a plan is developed whereby by God's grace walls are rebuilt. Let's stand together. Before there was the rebuilding of walls, there had to be the rebuilding of lives. Before there was a plan or a program, there was a prayer rooted in your word, praying the promises back to you. Timeless and timely merge together. If there's someone, Father, in any of these services this morning that is spotting, feeling, seeing vulnerabilities, maybe in our immediate circles or relationships or outward beyond, may we now take what's here as our starting point. Seek you. Pray your promises back to you. And then out of the context of this, we begin to see issues, looking at them through the lens of God. So, Father, you are sovereign. We are your servants. Take, Father, the burdens of our hearts. We pray them back to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.